0: And as you're finding your place in 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. And as you're finding your place there, I need to remind you of, of kind of where we've been as we've been working our way through this book. Um, I heard a, a message um, from one of my heroes on the book of 1 John, and he was discussing. How, uh, uh, how he, as a young man, uh, beginning preaching and, and going through school, decided that he was going to, uh, uh, there was a, a particular author that, that encouraged people to read through every book of the Bible for 30 days straight. You read the, the same book for each day for 30 days. And uh, this particular author decided he was going to take that challenge and he was going to begin with 1 John, because you know, 1 John is a good book to begin with, right? It's straightforward, it's simple, it's black and white, As was his thought, and so he read through it the first 30 days and thought, I don't have this. And so he read through it another 30 days, and so he's 60 days in and he says, I still think I need to go a little bit further. And so he, he read through it another 30 days, and so he's read through it 90 days, and then he decides he's going to preach this sermon series through this, through this book, and so he preaches this year-long sermon series through 1 John. Forty years later, I'm listening to his message 40 years after this, and he's re-preaching through 1 John and says, I think I've barely hit the edge of the iceberg, While 1 John is one of the most straightforward in several areas, John paints things in very black and white um, ways, it is also one in which you can never plummet its depths. There's so much richness involved here, And, and as we've been going through that, I hope I hope that I've been able to communicate some of that. We began on Easter looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and and kind of examining what it means, this message that John has given them, and how that message should impact their their lives. Uh, It should impact what they believe, how they live, and how they relate to one another. And then we looked at uh, uh, chapter one, verse five through two two, and we saw how God's uh, how how being changed, being a believer. One of the evidences of that is what we believe. What we believe, and we looked at belief as something is more than just oh yeah, I understand that, but it's understanding it, wanting it, and loving it. it there's this there's this all encompassing, and so we looked at the how John lays out the gospel here at the very beginning and talking about who god is who we are and why christ came and then last week i began or at least attempted to deal with some very difficult text in chapter 2 verses 3 through 6 and we looked at how this belief has to affect how we live particularly in obedience right that's what he calls us to and i i kind of want to remind you of that so let me just read this this portion here he says and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments in other words we can know that we know that we know christ if obedience to his commandments is a fruit of our life now that's remember i want to say again that's not a, a checkbox which we check off and say well if i just obey everything then i'm okay no, this is an outworking of, of being changed on the inside. And so we looked at this. Obeying God's commandments is one of the key signs. Now in verse 7 through 11, he's going to zoom in even more. And he's going to pick one command that he wants them to think through, that he wants them to see as an evidence that we're a genuine believer. Remember, the, this sermon series is called Assured. He's assuring their hearts that they are genuine believers in Christ by these evidences. So you and I, if you were to pick one command of God, this is a sure sign. If I obey this command, I'm a born-again believer. You know, I think we could be righteous and holy, but I think if we were to actually answer that question truthfully, we might say something like church attendance. Or, Or we might say that something like prayer or Bible study. We obey the command to read His Word, to study His Word, or or we might answer that um, uh, we might have a myriad of answers. You know, Christ Himself was posed that same question. He he was asked, "What was the chief commandment?" So let me remind you from the Book of Matthew what Christ's answer is to the chief commandment, the greatest commandment. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Well, Jesus summarized it for us, right? He's going he's to give us the, the greatest commandment. If we could summarize all the laws and all the commands and, and put them into one, one word, Jesus gives us this. Love God with everything that we have and love one another, right? Right? He summarizes these two commands. John is picking up on that in our verses today, and he's going to call us to obey the command to love one another. To obey this command. Christ says that upon these two commands depend all the law and prophets. So it is vital that every genuine Now, remember, we've been talking through 1 John. He's trying to discern who are the false disciples and who are the genuine disciples, false believers, genuine believers. Every genuine believer would demonstrate, would exemplify Christ's love. Christ himself said this is the chief commandment. Love one another is not an option. But it is a defining mark for every believer. We cannot separate love for God and love for others. This is why today we will see that your relationship with others is defined by your relationship with God. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask that you would read along with me 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment, But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." As we begin this, we cannot separate this from what we looked at last week, this obedience to a command. Now he's, he's going to zoom in on this one command, and I've already given you the clue that this command is to love one another. We see that made explicit in verse 9, and we'll get to verse 9 at the end. But leading up to that, understanding that this command to love one another is a, is a test, it is an um, evidence of assurance of faith it is evidence that you and i are genuine believers in christ so he starts this with love's command and verses seven through eight love's command when we look at these verses you may be saying john must have some kind of mental disorder he's talking out of both sides of his mouth and as you read through the book of first john you would understand that this is not normal right? John is very black and white. This is truth. This is not. And so we come to this passage and he says, I'm not teaching you a new command, but I'm teaching you a new command. And so, and so you get to this passage and very quickly you could, you could, be, um, you could be confused or, or, or shaken. So, so we need to spend some time understanding what exactly is old and new about this command. What John is telling them is it is nothing new because we look at this verse, and in verse 7 it says, you can find it with your finger there, uh, or verse yeah, verse 7, it says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. In other words, this is a commandment that they've known all along. This is nothing new. This is nothing novel. There's, there's nothing um, extraordinary about this command, love one another. And the reason John is pointing this out is because John's context is full of preachers who are trying the novel. It's full of preachers who are saying, well, God has revealed to me this secret knowledge. This new new way of doing things. He's dealing with these, these, I I remember I told you about these, these people with this weird name, Gnostic. They don't even know how to spell right. It starts with a G. The, the Gnostics they, 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 they have this new knowledge that they don't underst- that no one else understands it 's this this secret and, and while it hasn 't fully formed it 's going to form later in in, John, in the early church he 's beginning to see some of these and and John is combating these he 's almost putting these words in their mouth and here he 's saying this isn 't a new commandment this isn 't the novel this isn 't something secret this isn 't something i 've hidden from you this is something that 's been there all along you should have known i'm not not teaching you anything new matter of fact this commandment goes all the way back to leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and that passage uh, the law itself says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself for i am the lord this command goes all the way back to the law Uh, this is nothing new for the jewish christians this is nothing new for for the non-jewish christians this is nothing new because the apostles have been teaching this from the very beginning they've been teaching this kind of love and demonstrating it i know that when i first came aaron was preaching through acts 2 and and you saw how they were demonstrating that love so that no person had need i mean that's pretty amazing love right this was an important part of who they were from the beginning they were taught to love god and obey his commands obey all that he taught them matthew 28 that was their their um, commission right from the very beginning they knew this so this is nothing new nothing novel and for you sitting in the pew you're like yeah i know i'm supposed to love my neighbor this is nothing new we've been talking about this we had a whole series on what it meant to love our city and and how it is that we do that this is nothing new but on the other hand he says this is new now how can john be saying that i hope you all get with me how it's old it's been around for a long time what does john mean And this is one of those, verse 8 is one of those passages that I was talking about at the beginning, that you could spend your whole life plummeting its depths and never come out. It could encourage the most, if all you had was this passage on one page and you were entrapped in prison, you could think on this passage and be encouraged by this passage for the rest of your life. That's how serious this passage is. Notice what he's saying. At this time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. What is new about it? Which is in him and in you. The thing that is new about this commandment is the way it has been fleshed out in front of their face. You see, they've had this commandment for centuries. This commandment is nothing new everybody knows that you should love your neighbor nothing new in this but what has happened is they have for the first time seen love perfected who is the message that he's sharing with them jesus right for the first time for centuries they've been told to love their neighbors they've been trying to do it matter of fact They have all kinds of laws that support that, that they put in place to encourage that kind of love. But now they come to Jesus and they see that love demonstrated in perfection. This is not new in a timeline. It's new in demonstration. It's new in kind. We see Jesus here demonstrating this love. This is new in two ways, I think. We see Jesus demonstrating an unfettered love for his Father. We see this love demonstrated in an unfettered way with him and his Father. We see the Trinity express love clearest when Christ comes to earth. We see him talking to his father, and we looked at this last week, obeying his father, praying to his father that his will be done. We we see an unadulterated love for the father that goes above everything else. But it doesn't just stay there. Which of you could put up with Jesus' disciples the way Jesus did? Talk about a motley crew. Right. John. Now we all want to call John the apostle of love. Right. That's what we want to call him, because if you read John, the gospel of John and his epistles, he is very concerned with love. But you know what his first nickname was? He was one of the sons of thunder. He, he, he was brash. You know, we want to we want to we want to pin all that on Peter, but John was right there with him. He, he wasn't, he was, he was transformed over time, but, but he himself was, was this, let's go get him kind of guy. Look, look at the, he had tax collectors, he, he had fishermen, he had, he had a motley crew of individuals, and Jesus loved them. Matter of fact, when Jesus is trying to teach them about love, He's trying to teach them about how it is that they should love one another the way that he has loved Christ. They're reclining at tables and they're arguing about who's going to be better. And Jesus takes off his outer robe, wraps a garment, a towel around himself, gets down on his knees and begins washing feet. And he says, love one another this way this is the kind of commandment that we see it's not new in time and space it's new in the fact that we've never seen it like this jesus says you've heard it said that you ought to love your neighbor i and hate your enemy i tell you to love your enemy whoa wait a minute this is completely different In other words, the love that you and I express for one another, the command to love one another, the expression of or evidence of love as a sign of faith in Christ is something that is totally different than anything the world can offer. It's something totally new. While they say we ought to love our neighbors, the Christian love that is evidence of faith is something that is beyond all of that, and that's why he goes on to say, not only is it new in him, it's new in you. No, look at what he, I'm not making it up. Look at what it says here. He, he says in verse 8 that it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. In other words, the love that they're seeing in one another is completely different than what they've ever experienced before Christ. This is a a new kind of love in the way you and I experience it. And that's why he will go on to say the darkness is passing away and a new light has already been shining. And the true light is already shining. He can say up until this point, up until Christ, there has been a darkness over this kind of commandment. We, we haven't quite understood it, and we're going to get into what that darkness is here in a moment when we look at verse 9 and 11. But, but there's this darkness, but the true light has already begun to shine. Christ has already begun to demonstrate and show, and His love has already exemplified love and purity, love and perfection. As we hear that, you have to be asking yourself, is this a new commandment in me? Is, is this something that I'm demonstrating? Is this kind of love, and we're going to look at the consequences of lovelessness and the consequences of uh, of love here in a minute. But is this love something that is in me? This is what he's asking. Remember, these are these are check boxes by which we examine if if we've truly accepted christ if we're truly new creatures in him has this already begun shining in my light but john being the kind of disciple he is never leaves doctrine in the ethereal he's not he's not going to let you talk about it as though it's out here he's going to bring it right home to life and that's what he does in verse 9 and 11 he talks about the consequences of a loveless life Verses 9 and 11, and we're going to come back to 10. It's kind of the center of this at the end. But as John moves forward, he begins comparing a loveless life with one that is filled with this kind of love. And in verse 9, he says... Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is taking us back to chapter 1, right? In chapter 1, there was this claim to be in the light. In chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness, Right. So he's he's taking us back to chapter one and he's saying the one that's claiming to be in the light as God is in the light. The one that's claiming to be that person. But hates his brother is actually still in darkness. The one who is claiming to be with God, to be on God's side, the one who claims Christian Christian. You know, that's not just a fun word that we throw around. That, 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 that word is, is meant to describe a person who is in Christ, who finds their identity in Christ. A Christian finding their identity in Christ, if we're going to do that, then we, and we, if we're going to claim that and we hate our brothers, we are actually still in the darkness. This is like someone saying, I love God, I just can't stand to be around his people. That, that's really what he's talking about. The person that says, I love God at my home because I stand, can't stand church people. That, that's this person. And you know what? We're not all that lovable. We have our own faults, our own sins, our own... Th- this is who he is describing John says that they, claiming to walk in the light, are actually in darkness. What does he mean by hate here? We can look at this, and uh, let me ask any one of you. Do, do any of you hate one another in here? That's kind of a hard word, right? Hate? So, so we read into that our, our English context of, well, hate's a bad word. We don't say that. Like we're talking to one of our children, right? You don't say you hate something, because that's, that's really harsh. But let me talk to you about how Jesus used the term hate. Because I think this is more what John is referring to. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus talks about hate in this way. He says, blessed are you when people hate you. Right? When they re- exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So while many of us equate hate with murder, with, with despise and disdain. Jesus talks about it as a form of exclusion, a form of mocking, making fun of, spurning, in other words, not wanting anything to do with. Jesus uses it in reference to those things. Now, Now that makes a whole new meaning to 1 John. When we look at it this way, and we look at it in the general term, and I've just taken one text, I could take you to numerous, in which the term hate is often used alongside of less than murder kind of things. For John, hate is really just the opposite of love. It is really not showing love or being loveless. In other words, loving myself more than I love anybody else. For John, hate could include excluding somebody from participating in a Sunday school class because they don't quite jive with you. Or you invite a bunch of friends over from church and you say, I'm not going to invite them because they kind of get under my skin. You get, do you get what John's saying here? He's not talking about hate in the term of, I'm going to go kill someone. He's talking about the one who, who doesn't include, who excludes, who, who kind of puts someone off or makes fun of someone because they don't quite fit with you. That doesn't jive with the light of God. That, that, that doesn't coexist. That is the person living in darkness, not the person living in light. And we see this affect us in three ways. He walks in darkness. This person who claims to be in the light but hates his brother walks in the darkness. And remember we said last week that a walk is this all-encompassing, it's a manner of life, right? It's the way we carry out our business from day to day. When we go to the store, when we go to work, when we come home, when we mow our yard, when we get by groceries, whatever it is that we're doing, this is our walk. This is the manner of life in which you and I are living. And he's saying here that the effect of the one who hates his brother is he walks in darkness. There there is a, a darkness that characterizes every aspect of his life now people want to separate my love of others and the way i am holy right we want to separate those we want we we are okay in modern america with the 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 monastic movement of i'm going to go live as a hermit and not interact with anybody and i can be more holy that way That is not more holy that's just removing every temptation there is and every evidence of holiness god doesn't call us to be hermits he he calls us to see this expressed in the way we go about life and you you and i can picture this person in our mind the person that when you go to the grocery store and and they see you and they know you they they like walk a little faster to get out of the way. Now this grocery store is not quite big enough to do that. So this is like maybe Walmart holiness. Okay. But they walk a little bit faster because they just want to be left alone. Or or the person that, that when they go, when they go running and they see you coming, their earbuds are out, but then all of a sudden they stick their earbuds in, right? Because they don't want to stop and have a conversation. They don't, they want to know, you know, um, that we, we see this in all kinds of ways, you almost don't want to be around them, because their their life, their walk, their manner of life is is surrounded by darkness. But we see a second effect: they don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going. This darkness, he says, has an effect on them. And chapter or in verse eleven, he says. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. They're lost. They're directionless. They don't know where they're going in life. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how they're going to get there or why they're going to go there. That, that's, um, that's pretty intense. And you say, well, how does that affect you? Well, I'm going to illustrate with the relationship with me and my wife. Sorry, honey. It's the only way I can think to illustrate this. Now, I'm, I'm a pretty driven person, regardless. I, if I have a goal, I, I, I run headlong into that, and I have to stop, and that's why I'm thankful for my wife that helps me stop and smell the roses, because sometimes I just, I, I just want to get there and get it done. And, and so, But as I began college... We had already been dating. I already knew that I was going to marry her. The only thing standing between me and marrying her was a college degree. That's what I was honoring my parents. That's what they requested of me. So I'm like, okay, I can do this. So uh, knowing this, knowing that that was the direction I was going, knowing that I wanted to propose to her and I wanted to be with her, something amazing happened. I'd graduated On, I think it was May 25th of 2000, I know I'm sharing my my age here, on May 26th of the year 2000, I began college full-time as a student. I worked full-time because I knew I had to earn enough money to support her, because the rule in my house is you can't have a girlfriend unless you can support one, so I knew if I'm going to get married, I better be able to support one. So I began working full-time. I began taking 21 hours of credit uh, credit hours at college. You know what? It was the best thing that could have happened in my college career. I know for some people it's a distraction. For me, it caused me to graduate with a uh, near 4.0 in three years. Why? Because I wanted to marry my wife. I loved her. I wanted to be with her. It gave me direction. It gave me guidance. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with this? He's talking about the individual who doesn't love others, and they are lost. They have no direction in their life. They're like the individual that they live to go home and sit in front of the TV. You get what I'm saying? They have no direction. They have nothing better to do, so let me just sit and soak up what's on the idiot box, right? Let me just sit and I, rather than intentionally planning our lives so that we can affect others, so that we can be a part of others' lives, thinking, how can I be a part of the people's lives at church? How can I be involved with them? How can I help them? How can I be involved with the community and love the community and, and organizing ourselves and our calendars around such a thing that, that we then begin living that out and have direction in our life? We sit mindless waiting for something to happen. And you're like, who would do that? Just listen to pop music. John, I think it's John Mayer has a song out. says, we're just sitting here waiting for the world to change. That, that's, the, that's the tagline. That's, that's one. I could go through... Song after song after song, we've created a culture in which we just sit and wait for everything to be done for us and we have no love in our life to go and serve others. This is the directionless person. Not only are they darkened in their walk and darkened in their direction, they're blind. They don't even know where they're going. And you all know, anybody who's ever had a kid with Legos understands the problem with this. Walking through your house when it's pitch black you all, you're laughing because you've been there. You've done it. Maybe not Legos, but you know, those nasty Hot Wheel cars that you know, feel like they're spikes this long in the middle of the night, right? This is what this person is experiencing. They're walking through life blinded, not knowing what they're stepping over, not knowing what they're falling into, not knowing what's in front of them. This is like a man hiking, and before he leaves, he has a diligent wife who asks him, Do you have your flashlight? And he replies, well, Of course, it's always in my bag. He walks out the door. And he gets in the middle of the woods, and suddenly it becomes dusk, and he realizes there's no flashlight. There, there's no light. Soon he loses his way, and in time he is blinded by the darkness and the dreams that loom over him. However, if he truly had the flashlight, he would know where he was going. He would be able to see the roots that are in front of him. He would be able to see direction and find common markers and find his way home, right? This is, this is the difference we have here. That's why John compares it in verse 10, and he says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for strumbling. Notice the distinction here in I'm running short on time, so the, the, the distinction here between these. In, in verse 9, he says, whoever claims this, he's going to claim to be in the light, but he hates his brother. What happens in verse 10? Is he claiming anything? Is he trying to seek recognition? What, what is this person in verse 10? Whoever loves his brother. He's doing it. Whoever loves his brother, it is already evidence. He is already doing this thing. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. This stands in drastic contrast because this person who loves has found their home in the light that is God himself. They found their home there. One commentator describes it this way. John means to live in conformity with the gospel as an authentic disciple of jesus christ that's what he means to abide in the light to live in conformity with the gospel as an authentic disciple of jesus christ this love for others exemplifies that i'm abiding in christ love himself as you and i experience this love we are then able to love others because I don't have to find my love in, in you to know that I'm accepted. Because I find my love in Christ, the knowing that He's already accepted me. I can live out of that regardless of someone else's reaction to me, regardless of whether or not somebody deserves it. There is no caveat in this passage. He doesn't say we can love one another and abide in Christ if the brother is lovable, if the, the brother or sister agrees with my opinion. If they love me first. No, he says this person loves and abides in Christ. And the consequence of that kind of life is there is no cause for stumbling. There's no cause for him stumbling or anyone else stumbling. What do you think the number one reason is people don't want to come to a church? Given reason. I think we, you know, anything—even the best statistic—is kind of a guess. But I think we'd probably be surprised that it's the people that are inside the church. Now, some of that is excuse, some of that is um, a way out. But I think there may be a point that they're trying to make there. I don't know that I can dwell with those individuals. Because someone there has offended me. Because someone there has, has hurt me. Now, add to that the fact that this particular church lives in a small community in which everybody knows your name. Right? I mean, you add to that. Add to that the fact that centuries of families have lived here And automatically, there's a name that is given. And and there are a number of individuals, not knowing anybody here, that have said, I just don't know if I can go there because so-and-so treated me this way. And when I look at them and say, so-and-so doesn't go there, they're like in shock because their family has gone here for centuries. The church gets a name by the kind of love we have for one another. What does Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by... How good you are, how nice you dress, by your love for one another. The thing that should characterize us as believers in Christ and this church as a church believers in Christ covenant together is our love for one another regardless of what has happened. This is the assurance we have that faith has accomplished its work in us, that love has perfected its work in our heart. So let me just end with this question. How are you relating? Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and plead with you that you would cause these words to affect our hearts, that you would cause these words to be a test and evidence in our hearts, that as we stand here, for those of us who see this evidence in our hearts, we would rejoice that it is not our work but your work in us. That as we stand here today, we would be encouraged as believers in Christ, assured of the love that you have shed on us and our love for others. For those of us today who are in doubt, who don't understand, I ask that you would give clarity. They want to love, but they struggle to love. Give clarity to their heart and their doubt that they might experience the joy of fellowship with you. And if there be one here today that does not love you and therefore does not love others as you have loved us, I pray that you would help them to understand for the first time today the love of Christ. Oh God, today be honored and glorified in us as we seek to honor and glorify you and all that we think, say, and do. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Well, this is your opportunity to respond.